Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Money is basically a fiction that everyone has chosen to believe in. At least that's what today's Money Clinic guest Rob Dix believes. Rob is a professional investor, podcaster and author who has spent the last 10 years building up a national business as a private landlord and property investor. His latest book is called The Price of Money, How to Prosper in a Financial World That's Rigged Against You. Now, it isn't just a guide for people wanting to get a grip on their investments – it also explains how the global monetary system shapes our everyday personal finances. Money is created when loans are made, the amount of debt has gone way up, which means there is now loads of money, loads of debt, and it's kind of got to a point where it's not sustainable. Welcome to Money Clinic, the weekly podcast from the Financial Times about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, the FT's Consumer Editor. In today's Investment Masterclass, Rob Dix will be sharing his tips for growing wealth in times of high inflation and why he thinks it's harder to get by financially now than it used to be. Plus, I'll grill him about the property market and his experiences of being a buy-to-let investor. So, Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Well, your book came out last month and there's quite a story behind its creation. Share it with us. Yeah, well, it came about um, during COVID. I started researching the book when it first hit because it was such a weird time and everything went nuts. But the world of money went particularly nuts. Mm. And we'd just been hearing for years how there was no magic money tree. That was the thing that you kept hearing all the time. And then it's like, oh, but this unexpected things happened. So we need an extra 450 billion pounds. No problem. There it is. Like, well, what's going on here? So I kind of realized that I'm pretty good on all the personal finance stuff. I do this for a living. But when it comes to what money actually is and where it comes from, I don't have much of a clue. And if I don't, then presumably no one else does either. So I started researching the book. And Henry Ford's got this classic quote, if people understood our money and banking system, there'd be a revolution before tomorrow morning. And mm. after digging into things a bit, I'm like, yeah, it's probably pretty spot on. Mm. Well, I mean, certainly there are many things in it that fascinated and surprised me. But let's talk about your, your journey towards becoming an investor, because you started investing your spare cash at really quite an early age, and that developed into an obsession, in your own words. So tell us how it all began. Yeah, I think... I'm sure you'll agree, we kind of like take on like the money blueprint of our parents. Definitely. And so my parents were always very sort of frugal and sort of sensible with money. And there were never any lectures about it. You just kind of absorb it. And then from just having like part-time jobs from the age of 15, I just naturally found myself saving. And 
obviously, as you know, saving isn't the way to to wealth. It's great. It's it's essential, but saving in its own on it on its own needs to lead toward lead towards investment. Mm. Um, and then it's when I discovered I sort of like dabbled with ISIS and things like that. But then when I discovered property, it's like, oh well, this is this is really fun. And that was like a, a gateway because property. I think people find it appealing because it's really easy to understand. It's simple, it's tangible. And so that was one of what got me into investing more broadly and the point at which it did become an obsession and happily it's sort of a job as well. Well, yeah, a career and in, in broadcasting too. And one thing I ask everyone, Rob, who comes on the show is what's your earliest money memory? Yeah, it's a bit embarrassing. I must have been probably about five-ish, and I was sort of doing what five-year-olds do, which is badger your parents for things. That oh, okay. They, 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 <laughs> there are many things they do. Yeah. True. Yeah, I've got one, <laughs> so I'm very familiar with it. Um, and um, and my mum said, "said Well, we do. We can't afford. It. We can't keep buying you things. We don't have enough money." So I said, well, you know, "We go to the cash point all the time. Can't you just go to the cash point and get some money out?" And she sort of said you do realise that to get money out of the cash board, you have to put money in. <laughs> oh, right. I hadn't made that connection at all. Yeah. I, thought, I kind of thought of it like, you know, you just go here and you get money out. And that's the point at which it all clicks. And it's like, right, okay, so that's why dad goes off to work and everything else. And so mm. it all sort of came into focus. Probably should have got there a couple of years earlier, really. But I, I don't remember much from my childhood, but I remember that because it was sort of quite a sort of a things clicking kind of moment. Mm. So, I mean, let's kick off with some of your out there, bigger picture ideas about money, which make your book such compelling reading. Starting with the following line, money is basically a fiction that everyone has chosen to believe in. I mean, that seems as good a place to start as ever. Yeah. And well, when you think about it, it is like money in itself doesn't have any particular value except the value that we give it. So it works because everyone believes in it. And on a kind of a more big picture level as well the same kind of thing applies. So money does literally get created out of nothing. Like when you go and get a loan from a bank mm. for, a, for a mortgage or whatever else, there's no concept of, oh, well, madam, I was going to check if we've got any money in stock. <laughs> like, in the vaults. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they've got liquidity ratios and things like that. But essentially, they just they type the money into existence. They type some zeros into your account. And suddenly, you've got money that you can go and spend. So it's all completely abstract. And it, it works. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's a brilliant thing. And, and by able to have this kind of shared belief, we can do things that never would otherwise be possible. But because it's now become so abstract that... It is all completely based on confidence and faith. And if people's faith in our current financial system wavers, which mm. it might do, then you could end up with problems quite quickly. Well, yeah, as we've been seeing in the past few weeks. Now, how to cope with inflation is one of the big questions that you set out to answer in your book. But you also argue that inflation is really an entrenched part of the capitalist system. So tell us, Rob, why is everything getting more expensive and why do you think it might continue to do so? It'll happen because governments and central banks want inflation. Like They, they set out to create it. And so there's this famous 2% target, which there's no particular reason for it to be 2%. It's just a number someone picked once. But they but they sort of set monetary policy to, to make that happen because they don't want deflation, the opposite. So they, they want to have inflation. And the way that they do that is to um, control the amount of money in the economy, which kind of sounds a bit weird at first. But if you think about it, if we woke up tomorrow and everybody had an extra million pounds in their bank account... That would be nice. It, you, you think it would be nice, and it would be for a little bit, but what would happen? Well, prices would immediately have to increase. The price of everything would go up. 
Because otherwise... Because everyone's got a million pounds. Yeah, so yeah. there'd just be a complete scarcity of, of everything. So prices correct upwards. And that's a really extreme version of what, what always naturally happens. So they sort of try to com- create the amount of eco- money in the economy to keep prices growing slowly. At the moment, of course, prices are growing more than slowly. Um, and a large part of that is because so much money was created during COVID. Mm. And um, that's not a judgmental thing, because I need to create some amount of money. How much is the right amount? Well, I don't know. It's impossible to know. And so they they, they overdid it. And, and all that money is now kind of passing its way through the system, which is one of the reasons we have such high inflation. It's not the only reason, but it's, it's one of them. Now, you're great at explaining the why of finance. Now, anyone watching the news will know that the central banks, including the Bank of England, have been raising interest rates to try and bring inflation down. But why is this? And why isn't it working? The reason that they are they raise interest rates is the idea is by doing that it makes borrowing money more expensive. And when it's more expensive to do something, you're less likely to do it. So if your repayments are cheaper, you're more likely to go and buy the house or take the holiday or do whatever else. So by making money more expensive effectively, which is what raising interest rates does, it means that less money gets created because when a loan is made, money is created. So that's that's the intended mechanism. Why it's not working is I think it will, but it just hasn't happened yet because when you make a change like that, it takes time for it to work its way through the system. So it can take months or it can take years. And so the the volume of money creation has gone negative, which means inflation will come down. But there is a complication, which is when people become aware of inflation, and as you know, everyone's hyper aware of it at the moment, which means that people start going, well, I need a pay rise then because everything's getting more Mm -hmm. expensive people get a pay rise and then that means that companies need to put their prices up which feeds them into inflation and you get this inflationary spiral which um, central bankers don't like which is why you get um andrew bailey coming out and saying things like you shouldn't ask for a pay rise which is a terrible thing to say but that's the logic of it yeah i know we did a podcast about that i think it was our best listened to episode of last year now before we move on from this topic is inflation actually good for anyone yeah if you've got debt it's fantastic um, if you so because like, so if you've got a mortgage, um, then your your mortgage payments might be going up because of interest rates going going up, or it might do soon, and that's not a good thing. But the actual value of the money you borrowed is eroding. So if you imagine you're not paying anything off your mortgage at all, you say so you borrowed two hundred thousand pounds and you still owe two hundred thousand pounds, then the amount of pounds isn't going down, but the value of each of those pounds is purchasing power. Correct, yeah. So if your your earnings go up in line with inflation, but your debt stays the same, then it becomes easier for you to pay that debt off in the future. So it's great if you've got debt. And who's got more debt than anyone else? The government, which yeah. is one of the reasons that they're quite keen on it. <laughs> well, I'm sure that will be of some comfort to listeners who are really struggling with those higher mortgage payments at the moment. Because as you know, most of our podcast listeners on Money Clinic are under 40, not all of them, but, but quite a few. And Many of them are still hoping to get on the property ladder, trying as hard as they can to invest and save regularly to to get to that day. Now, this quote from your book will really resonate with them. For the past 14 years, you've been suffering from your money's hopelessness as a store of value, even more than you would have done in the past, whether you've been aware of it or not. So, Rob, why is this? And can you offer younger listeners anything to be cheerful about? (laughs) 
we'll see on the cheerful bit, we might get there. Um, There's sort of a two-parter. So one is, so for the majority of the time in the past, you'd be able to um, put money in the bank and come out ahead. So inflation would be eroding the purchasing power of your money, but you'd be earning as much and more in the bank. So you'd be getting through your interest that you're receiving. Um, That's not been the case since 2008. So for that whole time, you're guaranteed to lose money by keeping it in the bank which is not great. Um, so if you're saving up for a house, then you're kind of, you're, you're, it's getting harder and harder to save because mm. the money you have saved is losing value. The other part of it is that um, because of quantitative easing, which happened in the wake of the last financial crisis. So-called money printing. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's yeah. a fancy word for money printing. Um, it sounds more official and serious if you call it QE. Um, but part of that, into the intended mechanism of that, was to generate something called the wealth effect, which basically means that you, people who've got assets like houses or bonds or stocks, you increase the value of those assets, which makes them better off and feel better off. Therefore, they go and spend more money mm. in the economy, keeps the economy going, it stops a recession being being as bad as it could have been. That's the, the logic of it. But what it means practically is if you had, if you owned assets in 2009, great, because the value of those has been going up and up and up. Prices have soared, the stock market's boomed. Anything you can imagine has got has gone up. If you didn't own assets in 2009, tough luck, because the, the, they're getting further and further out of your reach. And the money that you're saving to try and get them with is losing value. So you can debate the merits of QE, but what it absolutely has done is stoke inequality, um, which mm. kind of takes us back to the Henry Ford quote. Okay, Rob, we've heard you set out your stool and different theories about where the investment world is headed. But let's hone in now on some practical takeaways for listeners and how, as investors, we can minimise that damage from inflation that you talked about. Now, my favourite chapter of your book was the penultimate one. You revealed how you invest your own money, not as a template for people to follow, but just as a way of understanding how you put your theories about the world into practice in your life as an investor. And you've come up with five guiding principles that could help people make the most of their money. So should we quickly talk a bit about each of those? What's the first one? So the first one is to be aware that saving isn't going to get you there. So for the reasons we, we spoke about, the fact that you're you're guaranteed to lose purchasing power in the bank. So even though in, you can now actually get something in the mm. bank. You could have got like three and a half percent. Four percent, Santander's Even answer. four. Yeah. Well, mm. that's great, but inflation's at 10%. So yeah. you're still losing. And okay, like inflation will come down. And so if you lock money up for a few years, you might end up getting ahead. But the core hasn't changed. In, you're still going to keep losing purchasing power. So it's still really important to save. You need to save before you can invest. You need an emergency fund. You need an emergency fund. If you're saving for something like a house, you don't want to have that exposed to the markets where anything could happen over a mm. short period of time. So I'm not saying don't save, but I'm just saying be aware that it might feel now like your savings are doing something for you. But because inflation is higher as well, kind of not. So don't neglect your investments. And the second principle? So this is to use debt responsibly. So again, 
even though interest rates have increased and so it's, like, it's more expensive to get a mortgage or whatever else, it's still because inflation is higher and it's going to re- remain that way on average. Your The real value of that is being paid down. And so in exactly the same way as the government is going to use um, inflation as a tool to reduce its own debts, because it's the only way it can do it. It's got no hope of actually paying any of it off. So, in, so inflating it away has to be the answer you can make use of that same principle. So debt obviously is not something to take lightly and it always involves introduces risk, but you can use debt as a tool and sort of like align yourself because people who have debts are probably going to do better than those who are trying to save. Okay, controversial. But what about the third principle? So the third is to be wary of fixed income investments. Mm -hmm. And so that includes bonds. And so the reason for that is the income is fixed and so if you if you're getting like a a sort of three percent on on then on your bond then that's great but again if inflation's higher than that it's not doing any you any good and then let's say that you put 100 pounds in you then get 100 pounds back at the end of however many years well the purchasing power of your 100 pounds has decreased by then Mm. so you're almost guaranteed to lose money and if you're investing in a bond fund or ETF rather than holding them to maturity, then you've got the possibility of capital loss as well. So I'm not seeing a lot of upside in bonds. And lots of financial advisors will completely disagree with me. I'm not a financial advisor, so you shouldn't necessarily listen to me. But the reason for that you've always been given for having bonds and stocks in your portfolio is, well, bonds move inversely. So when the stock market's doing badly, your bonds will cushion you. They're the shock absorber. Exactly. Mm. It didn't work last year. Didn't, and no. I'm not convinced it's going to work in the future either. No, and it's been a really big problem, even for older colleagues at mm. the FT who hadn't realised they were being lifestyled and having their pension investments moved more into bonds as they got older. So that's another tip yeah. for listeners. Check to see what your assumed retirement age is on your scheme. Mm. Um, because for many people, it could be as young as 60, and then they'll start gliding you towards more bonds without you knowing it yeah. um, as soon as you reach 50. Um, now, what about the fourth um, investment principle? So the fourth is to favour real assets. So this, this is sort of the things that you can touch, like property, um, but also infrastructure, commodities, things, things like that. And obviously, I've got a bias towards property because that's what I do. But what's at the, the core of that is that Real assets um, have utility and they're scarce. So value comes from scarcity. If something is abundant and there's loads of it, no one's going to pay you much for it. So if you've got something like like property or even gold or something like that, then there's only so much of it. Like there's a natural built-in scarcity there, which is going to become more and more useful over time. And with something like property, then of course, it's something that people actually need to live in. And there's always going to be a need for it, which kind of gives some kind of value to your investment. So in general, as we move into inflationary times and possibly more challenging times, it's always like things that people actually need that are going to perform better. Mm. And finally, the fifth principle, I quite like this one, be boring. Mm, Absolutely. So if you're going to invest in the stock market, which most people should be doing to some extent, then doing so boringly, I think, is the way to do it. And I mean two different things by boring. So I mean, boring as in not sort of stock picking, which for most people is a bad idea. And even if it's not a bad idea, you could probably for the same investment of time, you could probably just go and like earn more doing something something else. So that, that's one. Um, and the other is favouring boring companies. Um, so it's 
when 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 money is free and everything's going great, then all your kind of Teslas and Netflix and all those exciting companies that are maybe possibly going to make money one day are very attractive. When that's not the case, and we're now in a more high interest rate environment and going to stay there, um, com- like your kind of boring kind of consumer staples again, things people actually need um, that probably been trading a bit cheaper over recent years, again going to be more appealing. So we've, that's a, obviously a correction we've already seen. But what I'm saying is that I think it's going to stay that way because the conditions are going to remain in place. So keeping it boring, both in terms of the, what you invest in and how you invest in it, is probably a better way to go. And um, what do you do with your own investments, Rob? Do you adopt the, the boring principle there? Yeah, I do. So I've got, obviously got a lot of property in there. I do a bit of trading just for fun. The rest of it is just more boring old index trackers. Um, got some gold, not not too much gold because it doesn't pay you anything, but it's sort of good to have for inflation protection and nothing in the way of bonds. So I'm kind of practicing what I preach there. And like I say, that, I'm not saying that this is what I do, this is what everyone should do, because for a start, I might not be right. And even if I am right, everyone's situation is different. But if you buy into this vision of how the world is likely to be in the future, then that, that, that's a way of applying it. Absolutely. Now, Rob, tell us about your experience as a landlord and the, the kind of lessons that you pass on to people who are aspiring to to get there. Yeah, well, first of all, I choose to rent because I like the flexibility. So I fully uh, I do so in London where rents have gone up a lot. So I fully see that side of things as well. But that's also kind of shows why I like property as an investment because the rents do tend to rise in line with earnings and inflation. So you've got a, an income stream that sort of rises over time. Um in terms of actually getting into property, though, it's not something to be taken lightly. No. It's it's really tough. Like most, it's hard work. It's, it's really, it is. And uh, you can be, even if you take the passive approach and so you hand everything off to a managing agent and everything else, you, you should be doing a huge amount of research and really understanding what you're doing because you're taking, if you're doing the buy-to-let route, then you're taking a huge amount of money and locking it up in one asset. So you need to be pretty convinced about that one asset. And so... And, and even if you've got somebody else doing things on your behalf, you maintain the legal responsibility. So you really do need to understand all the legislation around it. And you should do, because uniquely, it's a financial advi- asset, but it's also someone's home. So you need to be doing it properly. Um, so it's definitely not something to get into lightly. But if you if it's something that you are able to commit a decent amount of capital to and I want to take it seriously and stick with it, then it can obviously be highly rewarding. And it doesn't mean that house prices go up forever. They don't. They will come. They will come down. There will be booms. There will be crashes. But over a very long term, properties always perform well. Now, for our listeners who are renting, what have you got to to say to them? Because they might say, "Well, one of the reasons I can't invest is because rents in London are so high." Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there's. there's not a great deal you can do about it because rent controls are sort of superficially attractive but then then it comes back to the you've got like a real scarcity the reason rents go up is because wages go up so people can spend more on rent and there are more people wanting to rent in london say than there are properties available and so prices have to rise until some people are priced out that's kind of how it works if you had a cap on the amount of rent that could be charged then you just end up with even more competition for the same amount of space so it doesn't really solve it so the only solution really is to create more supply which historically have had a terrible track record of doing Mm. so I don't have a great answer to it. My own rent has gone up enormously over the last year. And 
I wish it hadn't, but I don't think things are going to continue at this kind your, of pace. Your own rent. So mm. even though you're a landlord, you rent the property you live in. Yeah. Tell me more about that. I just like the flexibility of it. And so actually it works out as a better financial decision as well. I run the numbers and I'm actually better off renting rather than owning the property that I choose to live in. But I also just like the flexibility. Okay. Well, to return to the question that we asked at the start of the podcast, money is just a fiction that everyone has chosen to believe in. Now, with all the issues right now, Rob, in the financial system, do you think there will come a point where that faith in the financial system will be shaken or even lost? It, it definitely will. Um, I don't mean this in a, in a negative way, and I'll explain why, but... Um, it definitely will, because in the book, I kind of like trace back through financial history. And what it shows you is that every system of money comes to an end at some point and is replaced by something else. So how would you define the the current era of money that, that we're in? Um, you can trace it back to the early 70s, which is when something called the gold standard was kind of completely abandoned. Previously, money was backed by gold. And so there was something giving money its value. Now, what gives money its value? Nothing. Money has value purely because it does. And people agree that it does. Because we believe. Because we believe that it does. And as a result of money becoming untethered from anything real, the amount of it has exploded. Um, So because money is created when loans are made, the amount of debt has gone way up, which means there is now loads of money, loads of debt, and it's kind of got to a point where it's not sustainable. And so this era of money will have to come to an end and it will be replaced by something else. And historically, what we've seen is when that kind of system blows up, you then go back to a more kind of hard money system where it's backed by something. Um, So it will happen. But when it will happen, we have no idea. That doesn't sound positive. But my message in the book is don't worry about it too much because there's nothing you can do about it and you have no idea when it's going to happen. So... What you can do is you've got to control what you can control. And what you can control is saving, investing, or being sensible with your money and everything else. And if you and if you take control of what you can control, you will end up in a vastly better position than you otherwise would have done. So I think you've just got to focus on that and understand everything else, but not worry about it too much. Well, Rob, I'm glad that you're not worried. It's been wonderful cantering through all of the ideas that you've got in your book, The Price of Money, How to Prosper in a Financial World That's Rigged Against You. Hopefully we'll all have a bit more time uh, to, to prosper from it. Your ideas are really, really interesting. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. That's it for Money Clinic with me, Claire Barrett, this week. And we hope you like what you've heard. If you did, spread the word and leave us a review. We're always looking to chat with people about their money issues. And if you're interested in being part of a future episode and are looking for some expert money advice, then email us money at ft.com. Take a peek at our website, ft.com slash money, grab a copy of the weekend newspaper or follow me on Instagram. I'm at Claire B. Money Clinic was produced in London by Persis Love. Our sound engineer is Jake Fielding and our editor is Manuela Saragossa. You heard original tunes this week by Metaphor Music. And finally, our usual disclaimer, the Money Clinic podcast is a general discussion around financial topics and does not constitute an investment recommendation or individual financial advice. For that, you'll need to find an independent financial advisor. That's the small print for now. See you back here next week. Goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corian provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.